Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. This is a murder mystery. Here in the Tower of London 500 years ago, a crime was committed that was so vile it continues to haunt us even to this day. The murder of two young boys, aged 9 and 12. We know them as the princes in the tower. They were the heirs to the throne. And the killer, it's always been assumed, was their evil uncle, the hunchback Richard III, who murdered them in order to seize the throne for himself. It's one of the most famous murders in English history. Even today, Richard III is seen as the arch-villain of English kings. But I'm here to ask one simple question. Did he really do it? Because behind the cardboard cutout villain, there's a much more complex and fascinating character. Piecing together a murder mystery 500 years on is a tall order, made harder by having to sift the facts from state propaganda. Details of the murder were only released 20 years after the event. This story condemned Richard with a potent mixture of rumour, character assassination and alleged confession. The official version is that Richard ordered his servant, James Tyrrell, to kill them. They were smothered in their sleep, then Tyrrell had them buried in the tower. It's a version that was given some credence when, in 1674, two skeletons were discovered here, at the base of the tower. In the 1930s, they were scientifically analysed. But the study showed only that they were the bones of children. And even if modern DNA conclusively proved they were the prince's bones, it doesn't mean Richard killed them. So there's no smoking gun. Instead, we have to look at the balance of probability, judging Richard by opportunity, character and motive. The first motive. The most well-known source is very clear about why Richard killed the princess in the tower. But we learn this not from a historian, A horse! My kingdom but a horse! And murder while I smile. Shakespeare's Richard III is an unforgettable character, a 
bitter psychopath, lurching from murder to murder, wife, brother, as well as the princes, all for the same reason. For Shakespeare, the motivation was simple. Richard was a cripple. Uncle, my brother mocks both you and me because that I'm little like a name. <laughs> he thinks that you should bear me on your shoulder! Richard's hunchback and withered limbs are the most noticeable thing about him. It's the physical expression of the evil within. But Shakespeare was writing over a hundred years after the event, and we have to remember who he was writing for. Queen Elizabeth I, the granddaughter of Henry VII, the man who finally overthrew and killed Richard. Here, at the Society of Antiquaries, there are clues that Shakespeare's portrait of Richard is deeply flawed, right down to the humpback. There was a, a dreadful belief at the time that wickedness did show itself in deformity. And we all know Thomas More made a lot of it, and what about Shakespeare, what he made of it? This is the best-known portrait of Richard. It clearly shows his right shoulder to be higher than his left. But Pamela Tudor Craig, a world expert on the art of Richard's period, has made an extraordinary discovery. The hump has been painted in. That's this one here? This one here. The originally normal back was raised only a matter of half an inch or so, uh, at some subsequent date, probably very soon after it was painted, and another link of the chain of his collar was added very badly uh, to suggest that he was unequal. And it's just enough because this shoulder is very sloping down that way, and it, it does make an unevenness. Is it just me, or do his eyes look a bit mean and his jaw looks a bit tense? Absolutely. And uh, the x-ray that's been made of this, which showed that the shoulder has been raised, also showed that the eyes were not originally so narrow and the mouth not originally quite so tight. The evidence has been tampered with. Richard has been stitched up. In those days, if you wanted a copy, you had to paint it again. And as copies of this painting were made, the hump got bigger and bigger. And to prove the point, here at the Society of Antiquaries, we have a second earlier portrait, one which clearly shows he doesn't have a hump. This one hasn't been doctored. The Tudors never got at this one. It was in the country, uh, in, in Norfolk, and picked up in the 18th century, and that's how it got here. But did Richard have simpler motives that any detective would recognise? Greed, jealousy or lust for power? Richard III came at the end of 30 years of turmoil known as the Wars of the Roses. Powerful barons with allegiance to the Red Rose of Lancaster or the White Rose of Yorkshire, made alliances, toppled kings and wreaked havoc. Richard's eldest brother, Edward IV, seized the throne in 1461. Richard was just Duke of Gloucester. According to Shakespeare, 
Richard was jealous and schemed for power from the start, even before the princes were born. Once again, Shakespeare seems to have got it completely wrong because there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that prior to Edward's death, Richard was anything other than the most loyal and devoted younger brother. There was a traitor in the family, but it wasn't Richard. It was his big brother George, Duke of Clarence. In 1469, Clarence rose up against Edward. Allying with powerful nobles, he raised an army and, in a dramatic coup, toppled Edward from the throne. Edward was forced to flee to the Low Countries. He took a boat from here at King's Lynn. It's said that he left in such a hurry, he was forced to hand over his fur gown in order to pay the captain. He left with just a small band of followers, but it included the 18-year-old Richard. It looked like the end of the road for Edward. A new regime was in power. This was the moment when anyone wanting to promote their own interests should have jumped ship and changed sides. Not Richard. I don't think he was a scheming villain right from the start. I think his most characteristic um, feature before 1483 is his loyalty to his brother, Edward IV. Two brothers spent a bleak winter in exile. The following spring they returned, landing just a few miles up the coast from here. But they had with them little over a thousand men. The odds were still against them. Then Edward made a breakthrough. He persuaded the fickle Clarence to change sides again to stab his fellow rebels in the back. The tide turned. And with Richard fighting bravely at his side, Edward smashed the rebels. He was King of England, and the House of York was united once more. But Edward never forgot the behaviour of his two brothers during that dark winter. They say drink can kill, and in Clarence's case, this was literally true. Eight years after the failed coup of 1470, Clarence was again found guilty of treason. And this time, Edward was in no mood to show any mercy. Nevertheless, as a favour to his mother, he allowed Clarence to choose his method of execution. This is Malmsey wine, what nowadays we call Madeira. And rather than face being hung, drawn and quartered, Clarence chose to be suspended upside down in a barrel of this until he drowned. Richard's fate was very different. He was rewarded with vast estates in the north of England. By the time he was 23, he was the richest, most powerful noble in the land, the king's right-hand man, a model royalty. And when Edward was blessed with the birth of two small boys, the future of the House of York looked secure. England had found stability at last, and Richard had shown not the slightest sign of wanting the throne for himself. We're beginning to get a sense that history may have done Richard III an injustice. He wasn't a hunchback, he didn't betray his brother. At the moment, he certainly doesn't look like the kind of man who would murder his nephews. And I'm not the only person to think that. Incredibly, 500 years on, he's the only King of England with his own fan club. is the Richard III Society. Each year, it gathers at this small country church close to the scene of Richard's death to honour his memory. 
has 4,000 members and branches all around the world. Its mission, to resurrect the dead king's reputation. It's because there's a mystery, people get fascinated by that, and then it, it goes on from there. And once you start investigating it, you find he's really a rather nice person. It's perhaps a sense of justice, a desire to right a wrong that's done to somebody. I can't bear people who say they're being objective, but in fact are very cleverly putting in adjectives to make Richard sound bad. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> You're a member of the society? No, I'm not. Richard was in control of the north of England for 12 years following Clarence's rebellion. It's his positive achievements here that his supporters put forward as evidence in his favour. First, he was a brave and fearless soldier. He'd shown personal courage fighting with Edward, and in 1482, he led a successful invasion of Scotland, recapturing the town of Bury. Next, in an age of corruption and lawlessness, he was fair and just, putting an end to the petty feuding of local nobles. The North had been very disturbed since the, at least the mid-1450s. Uh, I think Richard does bring a degree of stability and peace to the North that he hadn't seen for years. He uses his counsel as a means of arbitration in disputes. That's not new. Lots of other nobles did it, but he did it very effectively. And he continued that as king. He seems to have developed a particular dislike for the bad administrator. How we wish we had Richard III now. These don't seem to be the actions of a morally bankrupt man. And there's more character evidence to balance the picture of a monster we've been given by Shakespeare. The records show that he endowed universities, gave generously to the church, and paid for masses to be said for the souls of fallen comrades. And it wasn't just a matter of form. He was a pious man who read complex works of theology. The remnants of his personal collection are still held in the British Library. For most 15th century nobles, books were just a status symbol, lavishly illustrated works purely for show. But Richard's books are rather different. For a start, many of them were second-hand. Take a look at this one. It's plain. It's unadorned, it's well-thumbed. Richard's even written in it. See that there? It says, R. Gloucester. Richard bought these books for himself, and he bought them to read, not just to stick up on a shelf. None of the evidence so far about Richard's motivation fits with him being the prime suspect in our murder mystery. He was a model brother to the king, and as far as his nephews were concerned, a model uncle. Then, in April 1483, the king caught a chill after going boating. Within a few days, he was dead. Suddenly, everything changed. 
Well, in the spring of 1483, Richard's brother, King Edward IV, died unexpectedly. He was just 40. The crown passed automatically to his eldest son, who became King Edward V. He was only 12 years old. His brother, just nine, had the same name as his uncle Richard, who, as we've already seen, had been a model second-in-command to his old brother. Suddenly, everything was up in the air. It's from this moment the clock begins ticking towards the death of the two princes. Edward's death provided Richard with an opportunity and a motive. And he certainly seems to have undergone a radical change because immediately he threw off his role as loyal lieutenant and moved centre stage. Edward's son, the uncrowned Edward V, was travelling from Wales to London for his coronation, and Richard immediately rushed south to intercept him here at Northampton. You've had 12 years of relative peace and stability under Edward IV, and now everything's thrown into the melting pot again. And I think people are really scared anyway uh, when you get a minor inheriting the throne, and because that obviously opens up the possibility for political intrigue and factionalism even if you don't have a, an uncle who decides to go for the throne himself. It's now that the evidence starts to mount up. The only proof of Richard's villainy is his conduct over the next 10 weeks. He met first with the young king's guardian, Earl Rivers, who was the queen's brother. Richard told Rivers he wished simply to join the king's party on its progress to London to add to the magnificence of its entry into the capital. They drank until late into the night. But at dawn the next day, Richard was struck. Armed retainers burst into Rivers' bedchamber and arrested him. He and other senior advisers to the king were immediately hauled off to Richard's castle at Pontefract in northern England. It was the sort of bold and decisive move which, as we'll see, was about to become Richard's trademark. With Rivers and the others now under arrest, he raced down what's now the A5 to the village of Stony Stratford. This house used to be the Rose and Crown, and there's a well-established legend that it's here that the king himself was staying. Thank you very much. Let's the king was told that Rivers had been arrested because he and the rest of the Queen's family were plotting to assassinate Richard. The young king, just 12 years old, protested their innocence. Earl Rivers, he said, was a loyal subject, but it was no use. Politely but firmly, Richard told the king he would now be travelling down to London under his protection. The two now set off together for the capital. We've got a poignant memento of the few brief weeks Edward V was King of England, and it may even date from that journey. It's an official document signed by Edward and Richard. Richard has added his personal motto, loyalty binds me. To us, this motto seems cruelly ironic. But when Richard arrived in London a few days later, it wasn't to a hostile reception. In fact, his seizure of the young king was popular. What he'd done was to wrench Edward from the hands of the Queen's family, who were universally loathed. They were seen as upstarts. Edward IV, it was felt, had married beneath himself. And the traditional nobility resented the power the Queen's family wielded. 
far better the young king should be in the hands of his uncle, a true blue blood. So when Richard suggested that Edward stay here at the tower, no one thought there was anything wrong with that. It was, after all, where kings traditionally stayed prior to their coronation and hadn't yet acquired the sinister reputation that it gained in the Tudor age. So Edward moved in sometime in mid-May and his younger brother followed shortly afterwards. They would never leave again. Richard was calling himself Lord Protector king's chief advisor. But if you looked closely at the kindly uncle, you could see cracks in the mask. He'd already been accepted as the chief counsellor, so the government of the kingdom was going to be conducted under his leadership. And this was quite normal and uh, as expected. However, it wasn't normal in minorities for the um, protector, as Richard III made himself in the end, to uh, both have the responsibility of the government kingdom and have the custody of the person of the king. Was he up to something? Did he really have the young king's best interests at heart? If he didn't, there was a major obstacle in his way. The one man who would certainly resist any attempt by Richard of Gloucester to take the throne is William Lord Hastings, who is one of Edward IV's most loyal supporters throughout his reign, and he's probably the man who's most committed to ensuring that Edward V is crowned and rules. So if you're going to go for the throne in Richard III, Richard of Gloucester's position, if you're going to go for the throne, William Lord Hastings is certainly a man that you're going to have to take out. On the morning of June the 13th, 1483, Richard called a meeting of the Royal Council. Naturally among those attending was the King's Chamberlain, William Lord Hastings. It was like a board meeting. On the agenda, the coronation. No one expected what happened next. He started by pulling the same trick he'd used on rivers at Northampton. He lulled them into a false sense of security. He was relaxed, friendly. He even suggested that they sent out for some strawberries. And he left the meeting for a while. When he returned, Richard's mood had changed. According to one report, he bared his arm, which had developed an infection. He was a victim, he said, of sorcery. The Queen was plotting against him. Then he rounded on Lord Hastings, accusing him of being in league with his enemies. He slammed his fist on the table. At this signal, armed men rushed into the room. Poor Hastings barely had time to splutter a denial before he was dragged off. A few minutes later, he was dead, beheaded on a makeshift block on Tower Green. live here, it's my home. It's where I walk every evening to relax and unwind after a busy day at the office. 
Hastings is said to be the first person to be executed inside the tower. It's possible that the two princes might have seen the summary execution. They'd have understood its significance for their own position. Richard had shown his hand, and now there was no going back. It had been a typically dramatic, even reckless coup. But what looks like a man on the make may have been a man who felt deeply threatened. I think that Richard III probably was making a political judgment about his best interest, calculating that um, if he didn't make himself king in the long run, he'd become a victim of the reign of Edward V in particular a fear that he had about the influence of the Queen's family around the young king, Edward V, and the possibility that he couldn't hold on to power. If you ask what Richard had to lose, it was this. Under his brother, he'd been given vast estates in the north of England, hundreds of thousands of acres. But land that had been given by one king could be taken away at a stroke by a new regime. There's another possibility, that he genuinely believed he was the rightful king. It's certainly what he claimed at a specially staged event nine days after the death of Hastings, just a short walk from the tower at St Paul's. Richard had already eliminated opposition within the nobility. Now he made a bid to win over public opinion. On this spot, in the shadow of the old medieval St Paul's Cathedral, stood something called St Paul's Cross, which acted as a sort of outdoor pulpit. And here, on June the 22nd, an extraordinary statement was made. It was meant to be a sermon, but the crowds knew the bishop reading it was Richard's mouthpiece, and he was announcing Richard's own claim to the crown. What stunned everyone were the grounds he used to justify it, a series of quite scandalous revelations about Richard's own family. Edward, Richard's brother, had been born out of wedlock, and so had the two princes. This left only one legitimate heir to the throne. At this moment, Richard himself was supposed to appear in one of the galleries of the cathedral to shouts of long live King Richard from the crowd. But unfortunately, he mistimed his entrance, and so was met by stunned silence. As a piece of theatre, it was a fiasco but Richard had made sure he had back up. Even as he fluffed his queue, an army was on its way south, summoned by Richard from his northern power base. It was clear he was going to seize the throne, whatever anyone thought. Three days after declaring himself king, Richard executed Earl Rivers and the other men he had arrested at Northampton. Then, on July the 6th, 1483, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was crowned King Richard III of England at Westminster. But one huge problem remained, or rather two small problems. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the tower, the two little boys. Richard had seized the throne outmaneuvering the opposition and moving with extraordinary speed and decisiveness. But in the tower, the two princes remained a threat to his power. They seemed to have been more than aware of the danger they were in. The young king, reported a contemporary chronicler, 
sought remission of his sins by daily confession and penance, because he believed that death was facing him. Before the coronation, the boys had been seen regularly playing in the grounds, but now the sightings stopped altogether. Edward IV's sons had been disappeared. The princes were taken right into the bowels of the White Tower here, and almost as soon as Richard had been crowned, rumours began circulating that they'd been got rid of. No court would convict Richard on the evidence. The princes disappeared, but in law that doesn't prove a crime's been committed. The story that Richard got his servant to kill the princes only came to light 20 years later. The bones of the young boys were discovered 200 years afterwards. If the Tudors had the man who'd done the deed, why couldn't they also produce the bodies? The evidence against Richard is purely circumstantial and doesn't sit easily with what we know of his character after he was crowned. If someone like the Bishop of St David's, Thomas Langton, who, is, uh, who one knows quite a lot about. He was uh, a rather delightful, well-educated cleric. If he says about Richard, God has sent him to us for the weal of us all, I never liked the condition. Any prince has got great thanks of God and love of all his subjects, rich and modesty of mind. Behind whom shall we place our Richard? None. Certainly none. But if not Richard, then who? Like the identity of Jack the Ripper or the shooting of JFK, there's been a whole host of pet theories and alternative suspects. First up, the Duke of Buckingham. No portrait exists, but he was a slippery careerist who helped Richard to bid for the throne. But if he did have a hand in it, he seems to have regretted it pretty quickly. In the tense months following the coronation, there was a major rebellion against Richard. Buckingham, perhaps feeling the tide was turning, threw in his lot with the rebels. They started by aiming to free Edward V from the tower, but halfway through switched to supporting a minor Welsh noble, Henry Tudor. A sure sign that the people believed the princes were already dead. Henry Tudor would eventually become Henry VII, which brings us to our second suspect, Henry Tudor's mum. The theory is that she had the princess killed as part of a scheme for her own son to emerge as the principal rival to Richard. Murderous or not, that's what happened. But in the end, the rebellion went off at half-cock and was easily suppressed. Henry had to scuttle back to exile in France. But one objection rules out both these suspects, and it also gives us our only real alternative murderer. To kill the princes, you had to get at them. With the two boys locked securely in the tower, only the king has access to them. But which king? Richard was only on the throne for two years before Henry VII took over. Suppose Henry, at his moment of triumph, had ridden into London and found the two boys still alive in the tower, the true heirs to the throne. Is Henry VII our real villain? There's little doubt that Henry would have killed them if he'd found the princes alive. Their claim to the throne was better than his. The Tudor smear campaign against Richard could be just a cover-up. It's a lovely theory. But common sense says it just doesn't hold water. 
If they weren't dead, why didn't Richard produce them and parade them through the streets of London to prove they were still alive? And if they weren't dead, or if she didn't think they were dead, why did their mother, Elizabeth Woodville, support a rebellion, apparently, to put Henry Tudor, Earl of Richmond, on the throne? Which takes us back to our prime suspect. If this was an Agatha Christie novel, then the murderer would turn out to be the least likely suspect, Henry or Buckingham or whoever. But history isn't like that, and for me at any rate, Richard remains the most likely culprit. He had the means, he had the motive, and his behaviour since his brother's death had shown a streak of ruthlessness. But there's still one unsolved mystery. OK, Richard usurped the throne and murdered the incumbent king, but in the Middle Ages, that was par for the course. I think it's, it's probably a mistake to select Richard III for special denigration. 15th century politics was a brutal game. Kings were killed in battle, imprisoned, starved, and in one case, gruesomely murdered with a red-hot poker. It's difficult to find too many 15th century kings who one would really want to spend a lot of time with, in all honesty. At King's Lynn, Richard had seen a king turfed out of his own country who needed to be tough to survive. It's probably easiest to think of these people not like our present-day royal family, the Queen and Harry and Wills and Prince Charles, but as present-day mafia dons with their bands of thugs and their struggles for power. No matter how many people got hurt, how many people got killed, it was just business. Nothing personal. So why pick on Richard? He's the victim of a process of myth-making and legend, and that process began here, in this bleak field. It was here that he met his nemesis, Henry Tudor. He's the grandson of an illegitimate son, bastard son, John of Gaunt, who was the third son of Edward III. So he has no claim to the throne at all. I was going to say that doesn't sound very impressive. It's very unimpressive. <laughs> this second rebellion of Henry's was the last round of the Wars of the Roses, and Henry led it for one simple reason. It was the only claimant to the throne the House of Lancaster had left. Henry had been in exile in France for the last 14 years. And the army he brought to England comprised mainly of French mercenaries. This was a foreign invasion, not a popular uprising. He landed at Milford Haven in Wales on August the 7th. Two weeks later, he arrived at Bosworth Field in Leicestershire. Richard was waiting for him. The battle that took place here on August the 22nd, 1485, seems to divide English history in two. At some time, round about mid-morning on that day, the old, savage, warlike era of the Middle Ages ended, and the enlightened, modern times of the Tudors began. At least, that was the Tudor propaganda. For Shakespeare, Bosworth was a simple morality tale. It's the place where the child murderer got his comeuppance. Give me another horse! 
Shakespeare makes it seem as though Richard had lost the battle before he started. He was haunted by nightmares, he was alone and friendless. But actually, it wasn't anything like that. On the morning of the 22nd, you'd have put your money on King Richard. Henry Tudor, the Welsh pretender, was a rank outsider. At dawn, the two men mustered their troops, and Henry would have been only too aware of the disparity in their forces. His army numbered around 5,000. Richard's was probably closer to 10. And Richard believed God was on his side. He paraded the cross before his men, perhaps this one, which was found nearby many years later. In every way, he had the strongest position. Henry was down there in that hollow where the flagpole is and Richard was up here on the hill. So the king had got the advantage of the high ground and he'd got an army about twice as big as Henry's. But he'd got his problems too. He'd spent an uneasy night. Shakespeare reckons he was racked with conscience. It's more likely that he was wrestling with practical issues. Medieval armies were made up of the retinues of various nobles which fighting under the banner and Richard was painfully aware that he was heavily dependent on the troops of one man, Lord Stanley, a powerful landowner from the northwest of England, who also happened to be Henry Tudor's stepfather. Lord Stanley was a man who'd always managed, always managed to be on the winning side, and gradually became a very powerful and influential person, so that most kings needed him on their side. Uh, something he was able to um, use to his own advantage. So Richard was up here, Henry was down there, and over there somewhere was Stanley with his troops, hedging his bets, waiting to jump in when he saw what was best for Stanley. The battle started at the bottom of the hill when the two vanguards engaged. It would have been brutal and bloody. Blow for blow, arrow for arrow, the battle raged through the early Everyone knew that time was on Richard's side. The longer the battle lasted, the more likely his superior numbers would tip the balance. Then suddenly Richard noticed that just over there, to the left of where those farm buildings are today, Henry and a few of his followers had become detached from the main body of the army. His old reckless streak reasserted itself. What if he could kill Henry? He could finish the battle and save his kingdom at one blow. He couldn't resist it. He gathered together some of his most loyal supporters and ordered a cavalry charge, down the hill and straight at Henry. clashed at a place called Sandiford, which was probably somewhere around here. Richard killed Henry's standard bearer, he killed a second man, and by this time he was probably just yards away from Henry, who would have been surrounded by a mass of French mercenaries. But at that moment, Richard's horse was killed from under him. It was all or nothing gamble and failed. The attack faltered. Then the final nail was driven in Richard's coffin as Lord Stanley at last committed himself on Henry's side. Looking up to see Stanley's troops swarming around him, Richard must have realised he'd had it. But he fought on, according to eyewitnesses, screaming in fury at the treachery of his allies. One thing even Richard's enemies never questioned was his courage. 
forget a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. One of his men offered him a horse so he could make his escape, but he refused and went down fighting. He was probably hacked to death by French pikemen as he lay writhing in the mud. And his body was stripped naked, slung over a horse, and then paraded through the streets of Leicester. Thus died the last medieval king of England. He's the only English monarch without a tomb. They buried him in a nearby monastery. Later, when Henry Tudor's son, Henry VIII, dissolved the monasteries, his bones were dug up and thrown away. It's said his coffin ended up as a horse trough. The Tudors wanted to rob him of all dignity. One of the aims of Tudor propagandists is to paint a really black picture of the Wars of the Roses as a warning as to what can happen when you have dynastic strife. And since Richard III is the last of the Wars of the Roses kings and the one whom Henry VII turfs off the throne anyway, he comes in for particularly powerful denigration. For the Tudors, Richard became a lesson from history. This was what happened when you overthrew the rightful king. But we found the one-dimensional villain presented by Shakespeare is a caricature. The real Richard probably murdered his nephews, but he was far from being the monster of popular legend. And that's where our story might have ended. But then, while we were making this programme, a chance discovery in a French archive turned all of this on its head, forcing us to totally rethink not just Richard, but every royal since. suspect Richard III. But it was never quite clear what drove him, why it was that the loyal brother of the years before 1483 was suddenly transformed into a brutal usurper. Then, while we were making this programme, a new discovery was made, one which provided an extraordinary answer. It was made not in England, but here at Rouen in Normandy. Richard, remember, based his right to the throne on the claim that his brother Edward, who was the father of the two princes, was illegitimate and shouldn't have been crowned king at all. And it was this claim that was central to the sermon that was preached at St Paul's Cross four days before Richard became king. But it's a claim that's always been laughed at by historians until an English historian was rootling around in the records at the cathedral here and came up with a fascinating document. To understand it, we need to go back a bit to the period before Richard was born, before the Wars of the Roses, when England was still at war with France. Richard's father, the Duke of York, was serving with the English garrison here at Rouen. Rouen was the English HQ in France, and he had his whole family with him. Richard's eldest brother, later King Edward IV, was born here in 1442. And the key thing to understand is that Edward only became king because the Duke of York was of royal blood. 
Mike Jones was just here to research the Hundred Years' War when he stumbled across a passing reference to the Duke of York in the daily log of the cathedral. Unfortunately for Edward IV, he was good at maths. It was here in Rouen in 1441 that Edward IV was conceived, wasn't it? That's right. So why is this document so important? This is the cathedral register for the summer of 1441. It tells us the clergymen are being paid for a sermon to be delivered for the safety of the Duke of York going to Pontoise on campaign. He wasn't there at the crucial time. He's not with his wife. So even though Edward IV was conceived here, his dad wasn't here? That's right. It had to be somebody else? It would. It's there in black and white. Here's the maths. Everything indicates he was born at full term. There's no record of him being small or sickly. In the Middle Ages, they didn't understand about 40-week pregnancies, but we know that Edward's birth date of April the 28th means he must have been conceived around the first week of August. The Duke of York was fighting in Pontoise from July the 14th to August the 21st, but the register provides further evidence. When the second son, who was to die young, was born a year later, the register records a massive celebration for his christening. No expense is spared. The whole cathedral is thrown open, the relics, the choir singing, the most precious objects are put on the altar. Edward's christening is hushed up. It's in a tiny private chapel in the castle. It's so extraordinary to celebrate the second son with so much more honor than the first. And this, with the second son, the couple had more to celebrate. Edward's gotta be a bastard, isn't he? I think so. <laughs> the records here back up gossip from the time, because when Richard made his extraordinary claim at St Paul's Cross that Edward was illegitimate, it didn't come out of the blue. All Edward's life, people were whispering behind his back that he was a bastard. What made them so sure was that he looked nothing like his father, unlike his brother Richard, who was the spitting image of their dad. Richard and his father were small. Edward was a six-foot-four giant. And Edward's own mother is reported as twice saying he was illegitimate. Up till now, historians have simply dismissed these reports as too incredible. We even have a candidate for the real father. The rumour at the time was that he was an English archer called Blaybourne. Burly, handsome, a bit of rough. So it may be that Edward IV, rather than being descended from the noble house of York, was in fact the child of a presumably very tall archer from the garrison at Rouen. And if Richard was aware of this, then suddenly we see him in a very different light. If he was the legitimate king, then what does that make the two little boys in the tower? This new evidence suggests they were the sons of an imposter, with no true claim to the throne at all. While Edward was alive, Richard had little option but to be loyal. After all, look what had happened to Clarence. But now, with Edward dead, it was his duty as the only surviving brother to restore the honour of the House of York and remove the corrupted line. Does that mean he killed them? I think he did. 
but I think it was a matter of necessity rather than evil grasping ambition. Why necessity? Because they attracted the faction that wanted to unseat the rightful claim and put the rivals on the throne. And yet it did affect him afterwards? I think it had a colossal effect on him. He felt that it was a, an act that he had to do and at the same time must have felt enormous remorse for what was a grievous sin. But the Battle of Bosworth meant Richard failed. The legitimate line died out. It was the archer's DNA through Edward which entered the royal bloodstream. Because as well as the princes in the tower, Edward had a daughter and she became the bride of Henry Tudor, who wanted what he thought was good royal blood to boost his own feeble claim to the throne. The rogue genes were firmly lodged in the royal line. We started out on a royal murder mystery. We discovered a Richard III who was far more rounded and complex than the traditional image, but who probably did murder his nephews. But we finished by uncovering a far greater scandal, the real skeleton in the royal closet. Anything the royals get up to today pales by comparison, and the consequences reverberate down the centuries. It means that some of the most famous characters in history, like Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, shouldn't be there at all. Every single member of the royal line since has been tainted by the blood of the Archer of Rouen. So solving one mystery has left me with another, and it's one that I simply haven't been able to get out of my mind. The monarch's claim to the throne, their right to live in the big house over the road, is based simply on being descended from the right person. But if Edward IV corrupted that line, then who should really be wearing the crown today? Is there someone out there with more royal blood than the present inhabitant? Who is Britain's real monarch? <laughs>